363, leaning on the everlasting arm. 363. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arm. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, As our cubby band is coming, I want to remind you of something that's coming up. That's going to be a very grand event. We've got our Grand Prix coming up on November 12th, and uh, this is a Sunday afternoon. And this year we've got a little bit, uh, some different things that we're doing this year. Uh, we have got the, uh, we'll have something for the cubbies, which is our three and four-year-olds. We also have an event We'll have an actual event for our Sparks, which is our uh, kindergarten, first and second graders. And we have events uh, this year for the third through sixth graders. And then this year, the uh, leaders have challenged the church staff. You got that car coming? All right. And um, so we've got, uh, Brother Ken's got his car, doesn't he? Yeah. He's working on it. But uh, Rick, got your car? All right, and so we're going to, so we've got a little, ad Rhonda, you got your car ready yet? Oh, got the block. Here's Rhonda's car. He left it up here. Here you go. Actually, uh, this is what the clubbers start with, and uh, sometimes uh, we help them carve down, which reminds me, if there's anybody here that has one of those tabletop scroll saws that we can borrow, make use of, see me and uh but this is usually one of the finished this is monty's car and evidently 
he's so proud of it that he built a box to put it in. <laughs> but uh, this was a championship car last year, I guess, so uh, we'll see who uh, is the champions this year. But uh, mark your calendars, November 12th. Plan to stay after. Even if you don't have anybody involved in Awana, now you've got a reason to come and watch because you want to see the leaders defeat the church staff, if nothing else. But uh, we'll have food there that we'll be uh, uh, ask, having donations for to raise some money uh, to help co cover the things that we do with Awana. But uh, we appreciate your support of Awana, and we are very excited about this race and uh, seeing the leaders beat the staff. Now our Cubby band. Okay, these are the three and four-year-old Cubbies, and they have a special treat for y'all tonight. They want to sing a couple songs for you and play their band instruments. Good job, boys and girls. Okay, these boys and girls have worked real hard, and they've learned two uh, Bible verses, and they're earning their first lamb patch. We have Charlie Cleaver. Colton Corbett. Amanda Hickerson. Caitlin Allen, Maggie Woods, Skylar Price, and Savannah Gaffin. Good job, guys. We have Brandon Sutton here. Brandon is earning a red jewel and a silver crown. He learned 13 verses, and he's going to say a verse. First John 4, 14. The, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Yeah, we're the chums, the third and fourth grade girls. This is Megan Reed, and she has 
get, finished her Bible drill too. She said some 13 verses. So she gets her gold torch award. Congratulations, Kevin. 40 is a real milestone. <laughs> Something else that we want to start doing on Sunday nights is allowing our faith teams to give a testimony of good things that happen on our faith visits. And at this time, and I'm sure he's forgot about it, Mike West is going to give a testimony from uh, last Thursday in our faith visits. Faith is a wonderful thing, and again, I encourage you to get involved in it. But uh, Brother Mike has something he'd like to share with you. I need to tell a little story first right quick. Uh, Terry can do that. We was, <clears throat> was that big? It's a true story. If, you, if you're under uh, 40, you might not understand this or may not uh, <clears throat> get the uh, point of it, but you, you go home and ask your mom and dad to explain it to you. But anyway, we was out visiting the other day, Brother Terry and myself, and was not knocking on doors. And uh, <clears throat> Terry knocked on this door. You know, this lady came to the door. This lady, she wasn't, I bet she didn't weigh 75 pounds soaking wet. I mean, she, boy, her hair was all messed up. She had a cigarette in both sides of her jaws. And, well, her apartment smelled like it hadn't been cleaned, you know, in about six months. And she took one look at Terry and she said, well, Conway Twitty, come on in here. <laughs> he's got that, he's got that country look. But anyway, Terry, Terry said, I, uh, said I'm, uh, I'm Terry Triven. I'm from Temple Baptist Church and uh, we're just out making some visits. But she said, you, just, you look just like Conway. So we went on down the street a little bit further and knocked on this other door. This lady came to the door. She made about four with Terry. She had kids hanging all over her side. She had chocolate all over her face, you know, where she'd been uh, fixing her uh, herb food and all that stuff. And she took one look at Terry. She said, well, Conway Twitty, come on in here. And <laughs> she said, oh, no. He said, Terry said, I'm not, I'm not Conway Twitty. I'm Terry Trivet from Temple Baptist Church, and we're just out making some visits. So we went on down the road a little bit further. Terry knocked on the door. This lady came to the door. I mean, man, she was gorgeous. I mean, she was, she was just picture perfect. Uh, she made Cindy Crawford look, look ugly. She took one look at Terry, and she said, Well, Conway Twitty, come on in here. Terry said, Well, hello, darling. <laughs> That's almost a true story, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we had a, we, we've been having a good time uh, with the faith going out from week to week. I've, I've learned a lot about, about visitation. I've been in visitation most of my Christian life, but uh, going out with the faith team, I've I, I really enjoyed it. It's not, we're not doing anything new. We're not trying to win people to Christ in, in any new way. We're just, we're just using a little bit different approach. Rather than be so offensive to people, we try to, we try to approach them in a little different, a little different way than what we've been taught. You know, in, uh, in years gone by, we've been, uh, brother, brother Kim, myself, my wife, we've been visiting over on Calhoun Avenue doing some survey work. Where they call it opinion poll. We run into all kinds of people over there. We, we run into. Uh, uh, some Mexicans the other night talked to them, invited them to the class that they're having next door on Sunday afternoons. We ran into one lady, she was a Czechoslovakian. We ran into, ran into one guy, and this guy, he didn't have a clue. We asked him, you know, why, why people attend church. This guy, he didn't have a clue on why people attend church. We asked him about what it takes for a man to go to heaven. This guy didn't have a clue uh, on how to, get to, how to get to heaven, how to get saved. So we're going to go back to him and, and talk to him. But we knocked on this lady's door the other night, uh, and uh, Brother Ken talked to her through the barking and howling of two mean vicious dogs on the front porch and man they just kept barking and kept barking my wife and I was praying constantly that the dogs would shut up or, uh, so brother Ken he, he shared with her the, the faith outline we got this little outline that we go through with uh, go through as we present the gospel and, and you get down to this point where uh, uh, in your opinion what do you understand it takes for a person to go to heaven and she give 
uh, a works answer, and Brother Ken explained to her about how to be saved. Uh, she did ask the Lord to save her. Uh, we're going to follow up on her and, and go back and visit with her in, in, in next week or so. So uh, there are a few people getting saved. There's, there's a lot of people out there that I believe just waiting on somebody to, to come by and tell them. I believe there's people just like an old Ethiopian eunuch just waiting for somebody to come by, waiting in a chariot, reading Isaiah 53, waiting for somebody to come by and share with them the gospel and tell them how to get saved. Uh, so they're out there. We just got to go get them. And I encourage you, all you people, that if you get asked to be involved with the faith, I encourage you to get involved with it. Uh, it it'll be starting up again after the first year, especially Sunday school teachers. Uh, it'll really be a, be a blessing to you. It'll help you in your, in your visitation. Thank you. Amen. We rejoice in that. Uh, let's have our ushers come forward at this time to receive the offering. What Mike didn't tell you about those visits is all three of the ladies did ask me if I was Conway Twitty. But when they saw Mike, they said, well, my goodness, it's Don Knotts. And um, so I'd rather be Conway than Don any day of the week. You be faithful in your giving, and uh, the Lord will bless you. Now, I have a card over here. Hang on just a second. I had a card that said how many we had in our English classes across the street today, but it has vanished. Uh, Miss Wellington, are you in here? Charlotte, how many do we have in the class today? Had 33 in our English classes today. And that is something we rejoice in. I, I'm going to go over there and take English. Uh, but what a blessing that is. But you be faithful, Lord, in your giving. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much, again, for the opportunity to give to you. Lord, help us to be obedient, and you bless the giver. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.
skeptics have declared he'll never come for us and some have said that we are fools to still believe they are sure he's dead and gone but in our hearts we know they're wrong for our lives were changed by trusting in his name
When I look at my life, I just can't believe how God's been so good to a sinner like me. But when God looks at me, He looks past my mistakes and through eyes of love sees a trophy of grace. I'm a trophy of grace, a masterpiece of mercy.
stand tonight please aren't we glad we're a trophy of grace tonight amazing grace how sweet the sound let's get out now shake hands with everyone don't just stand there and wait for someone to come to you get out we're all brothers and sisters get out and greet someone make them feel welcome tonight
keep on shaking hands. If you need a songbook, page 293. Sister Sheriff should come and sing. And right now it seems 
what God wants to do it again. trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to These are praying, and they're welcome to stay as long as they want to. I invite you to open your Bibles with me tonight to Psalms chapter 85. Psalms chapter 85. It has been a good day in the Lord, regardless of what happened. And whether you enjoyed yourself or not, I've enjoyed myself. 
It's been a pleasure today to have some of my old friends that I haven't seen in a long time and be able to come and be with me tonight. And that is a joy for me. I do encourage you to be praying for the pastor tonight as he is in the second of his services. Psalms chapter 85 is a passage of scripture that is another heart-gripping passage of scripture. And today has been one of those days for me and I am just honest enough to tell you about it. I had a message that I was going to preach to you tonight. And as I begin to go over that message, I got this haunting feeling that I had preached it here before. Now, I know that you people think that preachers come up with new messages every time they have to preach. You're wrong. Being a preacher's kid, I can remember several times that I heard the same message several times. Uh, but I had a message that I thought I was going to preach to you that the Lord had laid on my heart, but I got this, like I said, a haunting feeling that I had preached it again. And I think it may have been God just turning my mind from that message. And tonight I want to share with you a thought from Psalms chapter 85, beginning in verse 4. If you have your Bibles with me, look with me please in Psalms chapter 85, beginning in verse 4. Now there is some debate as to who is the author of this chapter. Uh, some people say that it is David and some dispute that. I say it's God, either way. But I want to share this thought with you tonight, beginning in verse 4. The psalmist says, Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Look at verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Tonight I want to speak to you on this thought. Lord, send my old-time religion an old-time revival. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word and what you've done already today. God, I give myself to you now. I pray that you would once again move me out of the way. And I pray they'd hear more than an organized sermon. God, I pray they'd hear a message from you. I pray you'd apply the truths to your people tonight. And we'll thank you and praise you for what you're going to do. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. You don't have to be a church expert or a church observer with special skills to be able to see that our churches are in desperate need of a spiritual awakening. And the truth of the matter is tonight, if we were all honest, we'd all admit that we are starving for revival. I remember growing up, I used to hear the, the old men of God say, we need revival. And I, even as a young boy, I understood what they meant by revival. But unfortunately, in the day and the time we live in, the word revival has been cheapened uh, by so many counterfeits that are out in our world. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Clovis Chapel, and I like Clovis Chapel's definition of revival. He said, revival is when the heart recaptures its first rapture and when the soul recovers its first love. I say to you tonight, church, that is what we need. We have left our first love. As a nation and as a people, we have walked away from what originally motivated us. 
And tonight, the psalmist challenges us. Because we have walked away from our first love, we are left with a powerless, pitiful, and slowly dying church. The world around us is no longer impacted the way it ought to be because we've left our first love. Ray Steadman said it this way. He said, we are all molded by God. Some of us are just moldier than others. Say amen. For years in our Baptist churches, we've sang the hymn, Give Me That Old Time Religion. The sad truth for many churches today is that the old time religion's in desperate need of an old time revival. We need God to once again breathe His mighty breath through our cold, calloused, and contented hearts and once again awaken us to the reality of a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And we as God's people need desperately to see that the only hope we have of existing and impacting in this world around us is not more religion but a mighty revival. Uh, the kind of revival that we need will not begin on icy pews, but in individual people. You see, before we can have a revival that will show publicly, we first have, a, have to have a revival that will stir personally. I've told the story before about how during the Great Welsh Revival, a reporter traveled to the small country to check on the amazing happenings that were going on. And when he got there, he stopped the policeman, and he asked the policeman, he said, Sir, where is the Welsh revival? I love that man's response. He stood tall and puffed his chest out and pointed his finger to his heart, and he said, The Welsh revival is right here. Yes. Psalms chapter 85 is a prayer for revival. And in this passage, the psalmist is reminding God, so to speak, of some things that he had done in the past. The psalmist reminds God of how over and over again he forgave the sin of his people and brought them out of captivity. The overwhelming theme of this passage of Scripture seems to be, Lord, please do it again. There have been many times throughout the history of the church of Jesus Christ when our God has showed himself willing and able to bring his people beyond the programs and the procedures of mere religion and place them smack dab in the middle of the power and passion of revival. I say to you tonight, because God has done it before, you and I have a prayer and a hope that he'll do it again. We have a hope because of God's immutable nature that he will bless us once again with revival. You see, the psalmist, when we read his words, we can tell that he had experienced this revival. And we can also tell that he longed and he yearned to see it again. You see, to the psalmist, revival was more than a week's worth of services with a special speaker. Revival was a life-changing event that he wanted to happen again. Growing up, I heard time and time again the stories of how God visited his people in a special way. And I have to confess to you tonight, I wonder if I'm ever going to get to see that. I wonder if any of the teenagers that I preach to on Wednesday night will ever find themselves involved in a special movement of God. I wonder if my son Tanner will ever see God's hand move upon his people again. But because the psalmist prays for it, 
I have hope. Tonight, I want to share three things with you from this text very briefly. I believe the psalmist has a message that is very applicable for our day. I want you to notice three things from verses 4 through 6. First thing I want you to notice tonight is the conditions that lead to revival. Now, regardless of what the Joy Boys on TBN tell you about revival, the truth of the matter is revival is not something that can be formulated or figured out. Revival can't be packaged by the Southern Baptist or purchased by the Methodist. You see, revival does not begin with man. Revival originates from above and impacts below. Revival is something that is purely heavenly but affects earthly. Uh, for years, meteorologists have tried to study the tornado. Because of the devastation that it causes, they have tried to get a better uh, system of judging when it's going to take place. But they still have a problem, and that is that a tornado is unpredictable. They cannot, with complete accuracy, predict when a tornado is going to strike. What they can do is tell us when the conditions are right for a tornado to strike. Nobody knows for sure if or when a heaven-sent revival will ever come again. But what we do know is what the Word of God has said. The Word of God has given us some conditions that we know must be met if revival is ever going to have a chance of coming. In the psalmist, this text, the psalmist lays out some of these conditions for us. I want you to notice, first of all, the psalmist says, if revival is ever going to come, there must first be an honesty about sin. R.A. Torrey, the great man of God, once gave his prescription for revival. It had three parts. And the third one, or the first one, is the one I find to be the most true. R.A. Torrey said, first, let a few Christians... They need not be many. Get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is a prime essential. In our text in verse 4, the psalmist makes a statement about repentance. Look at what he says in verse 4. The psalmist says, turn us, O God. Now when the psalmist makes, uses those two words, turn us, he is in fact acknowledging the fact that there is something that needs to be turned from. And in making this statement before God, he is opening himself up and being honest with God about his sin. There are no skeletons hidden in the closet. There is not a sin that he swept under the rug to hide from the holy God. He has opened himself up and said, God, this is my problem. I need to repent. In verse 5, the psalmist discusses the anger of God toward his people. And I said it this morning, and I'll say it again. If God is angry with his people, it is only because of sin. God does not get mad at us without a justified reason. God's not like your teenager. He doesn't wake up in a bad mood one morning towards you for no reason. If God is angry with us, it is because of our sin. It is our sin that causes God's hand to move from us. The truth of the matter is, it's not God's fault that we as the church are not seeing souls saved anymore. We like to say, where is God? And again, we like to blame our coldness and our deadness on Him. But it is not His fault that we don't see lives changed and stirred the way they ought to be. 
You see, it is not God's fault that we are dead. It is the sinner's fault. The truth of the matter is, we are at fault. And the psalmist was honest with God about his sin. And I say to you tonight, if we're ever going to see God come down and perform heavenly CPR on our lifeless lives, then there is first going to have to be individuals who become honest with God about their sin. There can be no more hiding or covering or running from God. One of the conditions that without a doubt leads to revival that God has set forth and said it must be is that there must be an honesty about sin. But not only must there be an honesty about sin, but notice further, there must also be a humbling of self. In verse 4, when the psalmist says, turn us, he's not only being honest with God about his faults and failures, but he is in, in action humbling himself before God. Someone asked Gypsy Smith, the great preacher, Gypsy Smith, how do you start a revival? And I like what the man of God said. He said, go home and lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of the room, take a piece of chalk, and draw a circle all the way around yourself. And then you begin to pray for God to send revival inside that circle. When the prayer's answered, revival will be on. You see, the psalmist, when he says, turn us, in verse 4, there is a mark of humility and a mark of surrender before God in his words. It's as if the psalmist is saying, God, I cannot turn myself. I need you, who is all-powerful, to come down and turn me. The psalmist acknowledges before God that he is hopeless and helpless unless the Holy Spirit come down. There is a humbling of self. Did you notice that there's no request on the psalmist's part to turn somebody else? He doesn't say, Lord, please turn sister so-and-so. You know how wicked she is. Lord, please turn that family down the street. God, you know they need repentance. No, the psalmist's fingers are not pointed anywhere but at himself as he acknowledges before God that it is me who needs to be turned. There is a personal humbling before a personal God. When God deals with his people, he deals with individuals. Oh, we're so quick to say, yes, we want revival. Preachers get up and say, we need revival. And we say, amen, and hoot and holler. But so quick, we're, we're so excited about it, but yet we don't expect it to start with us. We're looking for somebody on the other side of the auditorium to catch it. And then we're hoping that like a cold, we'll somehow get it. And we stand before God and say, yes, we want revival, but don't start it on my block, God. We're so quick to point our fingers and say, other people need it. Oh, but the psalmist was not that naive. He bowed before a holy God and said, I need to be turned, Lord God. The Word of God is pretty clear. We cannot create revival. But the conditions that lead to revival rest on us. There must be an honesty about sin and there must be a humbling of self. But notice the second thing. Notice not only the conditions that lead to revival, but notice further the cry that longs for revival. Verse 6, the psalmist says, Wilt thou not revive us again? The Hebrew here literally says, Wilt thou not return and revive us again? Now the psalmist is not saying that God has left or departed, but rather that relationship and that intimacy that he used to have with God is gone away. So the bad news in this passage of Scripture is that the people of God are not where they need to be. 
But the good news is that their hearts long and yearn to return to where they need to be. I say to you tonight that one of the problems with the church of Jesus Christ today is that we're not where we need to be spiritually. But the even greater danger is that we don't care. The even more solemn problem that we face is again the problem of apathy. I said this morning, I believe that one of the reasons we are losing our power and losing our effect on a lost and dying world is because apathy rules in the church house. We simply don't care that we've been diagnosed as dead. We're like the church of Laodicea. We sit on our pew and we say, everything is fine. We don't need anything. But the Lord Jesus points his finger and that nail-pierced hand at us and he says, you don't even realize that you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. The psalmist bowed before a holy God and he said, Lord, I need to be turned. It is my heart that longs for a revival, Lord. The heart's cry of this author is that God would once again breathe upon him. There are a couple of things that I want you to see about the cry of this writer. I want you to notice, first of all, that there is an admittance of his position. Now, one of the reasons that we as God's people do not long for revival the way we should is because we do not want to admit that we have a need for revival. Praise God, the church down the road needs some revival. Bless God, my neighbor needs revival. Them heathen kids of his need revival. But not me, I'm all right. I'm okay. You see, it's hard to cry for revival because in doing so, we admit before God that we're dead and need to be revived. So crying for revival is not something that comes natural to your everyday Baptist. <laughs> because in doing so, we have to admit our position before God. But the psalmist in verse 6 has absolutely no reservations in bowing before God and saying, I need revival, Lord God, my heart and my life. Addison Lake said, if depravity were blue, we'd be blue all over. I agree with that, and I say to you that if the church is ever going to once again see God's hand of blessing, breathe upon it, we're going to have to get our heads out of the sand and admit our position before God and come to the point where on our knees before Him we say, Lord God, it is my life that needs revival. There is an admittance of position. You see, I heard one preacher say, we have become so independent that we're independent of God. My prayer is that God would give each and every person who comes to Temple Baptist Church the heart cry of the psalmist to say, Lord God, revive my soul. Let your fresh touch blow afresh on me, God, and, and move me because I'm dead. In this heart cry that longs for revival, there's not only an admittance of his position, but notice also there is an acknowledgement of God's power. The psalmist in verse 6 not only admits to God that he has a need of revival, but in doing so, he also admits that it's God and God alone who can send revival. He says, wilt thou not revive us again? Will you, God, you revive us? It is you and you alone that can help us. Uh, when he does this, there's no attempt at a church growth program. He hasn't gone to the bookstore and bought a box that's going to rejuvenate his church. He's not 
opened a book on church growth. No, he's just bowed before God and said, Lord, we need you to revive us because it's you and you alone who can revive. I've told this story before. There was a sign in a textile mill that hung on a machine, and the sign said, when thread becomes tangled, call the foreman. There was a young girl who hadn't been on the job very long who was working on that machine, and sure enough, the thread became tangled, and she decided that she would fix it herself. And pretty soon, she had made an even bigger mess than what she started with. So she called the foreman. The foreman got there, and he said, why didn't you call me? She said, I did my best. He said, no, ma'am, to do your best, you should have called me first. For years, we as churches have tried newfangled ways to get the people of God excited about the things of God. For years, we've tried everything in our power and scratched and scraped to get people to come to our services, and we've tried everything in our power to motivate people, but overall, I think you'd have to agree, our efforts have been wasted. They've produced a null result. I submit to you tonight that what we need to do is give up on scratching and, and scraping, and we need to begin kneeling before a holy God in a humility, and saying, Lord God, we cannot produce revival. We cannot make this great church that you've blessed us with grow. God, it has to be you and you alone. You see, there's an acknowledgement of God's power. There's a heart cry that longs for revival. And in that heart cry, there is an open honesty about sin and there is a humbling of self. And the psalmist admits his position, but he also acknowledges God's power. Notice not only the conditions that lead to revival and the cry that longs for revival, but this is my favorite part, the communion that lives from revival. See, there's a reason that the psalmist cries for revival. There is a motivating factor in his prayer being God send revival. You see, the psalmist knows that when revival comes, the hearts and lives of God's people are changed. He realizes that something will happen. He knows that once true heaven-sent revival occurs, it produces a result. Look what he says in verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Did you see it? The psalmist, when he dreamed of revival, he saw a day in which the hearts and lives of men and women were changed forever. He knew that revival had a lasting impact on the lives of Christians. He envisioned a communion with God that went beyond the formalities of religion. He envisioned a communion with God that exceeded the programs and the procedures of an hour church service. He envisioned a communion in which the people of God were brought to see God in a way they had not seen Him in a long time. He envisioned a communion in which the people of God got a glimpse of God that they desperately needed. I say to you that there is a communion that lives from revival. And that revival can only come from the Holy Ghost. Notice a couple of things about this communion. When revival comes and it produces this communion, first of all, there will be a real fullness of joy. Psalmist says in verse 6, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may 
rejoice. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon was teaching a class of young preachers, and he was emphasizing to the preachers the importance of making your facial expressions match up with what you're talking about. Mr. Spurgeon said, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let it be irradiated with a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. And then he said, but when you talk about hell, your regular face will do. <laughs> the, the way many Christians look and talk, you wonder if they're servants of Christ or slaves in a prison camp. They act as if their life is the biggest old me mess we've ever seen. <laughs> but I say to you, when the Holy Ghost of God revives our hearts, yes, there'll be a repentance. Yes, there'll be a grieving over our condition. But once that has passed, there'll be a fullness of joy that you can't explain. There'll be a happiness that exceeds anything you've ever felt before. It's not a false joy. It's a full joy. You won't have to slap on your go-to-Sunday face and slap on your go-to-Sunday handshakes. You'll be so excited about being in the presence of God that they won't be able to hold you outside the church doors. There is a real fullness of joy. 1 John 1, 4 told us that the Word of God was given that our joy may be full. The Lord Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. You see, when the Holy Ghost revives our hearts, joy is restored. Oh, Mom and Dad, that happiness that you thought left long ago can refill your heart. Son, daughter, that joy that you thought you'd never see again, Holy Ghost revival can bring it back. That, that excitement that you felt toward the things of God that has grown so cold. Oh, it can be renewed when heaven-sent revival is poured out on God's people. There is a real fullness of joy. But notice also, and this is most importantly, there is a renewed focus on Jesus. Verse 6 says that thy people may rejoice in thee. Notice what they're rejoicing in. They're not excited because they've got an exceptional music program. They're not excited because they had 500 in Sunday school. They're not excited because their preacher cracks good jokes or that he doesn't talk about giving a whole lot. They're not excited about any of these superficial things. Their joy is in the one who gives all joy. I don't know about you, but I've been in some church services where it's all about the singers. Ever been in some of them? I've been in some church services where it's all about the preacher. It was all about him and what he had to say. But then I've been in some church services where it didn't matter who or what was in the building. It was all about Jesus. And it was in those church services that my life was changed forever. It was those church services that lasted longer than it took me to go home and turn the TV on. It was those church services that transformed my life. And I say to you tonight... If the Holy Ghost of God ever breathes upon us again, you won't care about people or procedures or programs. All you'll care about is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. That's all you'll see and that's all that'll matter. There's a renewed focus on Christ. Jesus is the only thing that matters. Yet so often he's pushed aside by things that don't. David Dixon said, When God changeth the cheer of his people... 
They should not joy in the gift, but in the giver. <laughs> there is a communion that lives from revival. And in this communion, that joy you thought was gone is restored. And it's restored because the focus you've lost is put back on Jesus. I tell you, I, I think the songwriter understood this communion when he penned the words, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I don't know about you, but I long for that communion. I need that communion. My week gets longer and I, I desire that special communion, that special visitation of the Holy Ghost upon my life where it becomes no longer normal, but it comes extraordinary. A relationship that brings me beyond. If I said tonight that the need in our country for revival is great, everybody would amen. Because the need in America for revival is obvious. We see that publicly. You don't have to look very far. But I believe this, this evening that the greater need for revival is not the alcoholic on the street or the harlot who works for her money, or, or, or the drug addict, or, or the politicians in Washington, though they're in desperate need of it. I don't believe the greatest need for revival lies there. I believe it lies with the people who sit on pews. I believe the greatest need for revival is the people of God. They need to see what God can do again. It doesn't matter if we ever see revival again, and I don't know if we will. My heart aches for it. I want to see it. I've never experienced it. But I want to. But regardless of whether we ever see it or experience it, the fact that the fellow in Psalms chapter 85 cried for it and prayed for it ought to move us. The fact that his heart longed to see it again ought to shake us. It ought to absolutely crash that little comfortable world that we've developed. It ought to move us to the point where we say, Lord God, all games aside, I need revival. Me, my heart, my life, my home, my relationships, my job. God, I need it. I say to you tonight, Lord, send my old-time religion and old-time revival. Will you stand to your feet with heads bowed and eyes closed? Musicians come to begin to play softly. I need not give any wordy challenges or I need not try to drag you out of your seat. Because the truth of the matter is, if you respond, that's not between you and me. That's between you and God. And whether you move or not, I've done my part. But if God has spoken to you tonight, then you better be obedient. You had better get out of your seat and come before Him and talk to Him and do business with Him. He pleads with us tonight. He pleads with Israel and woos them back. And the same God who pled in Micah pleads in Psalms for His people to come to Him. My challenge to you tonight is very simple. Be obedient to God. So the Rick's going to...
lead us in an invitation song. And I'm going to pray. But as he starts, I ask you not to hesitate. I am beginning to get a grasp of what our pastor's vision is for this church. And he talked about seeing a future of wonders. I say to you that until we as the people of God get a hold of the truths of God, that there'll be no wonders for our future. God forbid the day he writes Ichabod across Temple Baptist Church. But we must continue to be obedient to him. I'm going to kneel and I'm going to pray. As Brother Rick leads us in singing, you'll be obedient to God. Son.